Go ahead and open your Bibles to the book of Esther. And uh, I'm going to start off by telling you a little bit of a story. Uh, when I was in high school, uh, a good friend of mine's name was Dan Allen. And his dad was the pastor of the Presbyterian Church in Onalaska, Washington. And when I would go over there for lunchtime sometimes, um, it'd be his dad, his mom, and him, and I'd, I'd be the, you know, the tag-along friend. And we would be having some kind of a small lunch or whatever over there. And in the background, there was something I heard on the radio every single time I went over there, just imprinting in my mind. And it was a story that was usually about some forgotten person or some facts in history or some things like that. And this person on the radio would talk about all of this. And at the end of it, he'd give you the reveal of who it is or what it was he was talking about in particular. And that was known as the rest of the story. So some of you may know the person who did that. That was Paul Harvey. And he had a great way with words and a way to build a picture with the words. And, you know, even as a teenager, I listened to it because it was, it was good to listen to. Uh, one of the things that is interesting is his show started on May 10th, 1976. That's when it was its own show, not part of something else. After he passed away and they had the replacement come in, it lasted three weeks. And they shut the program down. And it's hard to follow behind somebody who's iconic or who creates um, the the picture or creates the system or creates any of those things. When you come back behind, it's always a difficult situation. Um, and that doesn't matter whether it's a pastor. Uh, you know, there was a pastor who was, once was down in Texas and he was very well known and he died and the replacement pastor came in and everybody's asking him, you know, hey, this person's a big thing. What are you going to do? And he goes, I'm just going to preach and teach the Bible. You know, I, I, I can't be, uh, anybody who I'm not, or we shouldn't be anybody who we're not. We need to be the person who God wants us to be. And as we're looking in here um, in the Bible, one of the things that we that I've talked about before is that when we look at the Bible, there's three different ways that we should look at any verse that we see. It happened historically just as the Bible tells you. Now, I know there's a lot of people who have a problem with the history of the Bible, and they think that they know better, and they think they have things figured out. More often than not, you wait long enough, and archaeology even in itself shows you that they're wrong. The second thing is doctrinally. It has some doctrinal applications to somebody, somewhere, sometime. And it may not be us as Christians. And the last one is inspirationally. Inspirationally, we can take verses anywhere out of the Bible. It doesn't matter whether doctrine applies to us. Inspirationally, we can take it and learn some things from it and apply it to our life. And that's what we're going to do a little bit here with Esther. And uh, one of the things that start off with is, it says in verse 1, Now it came to pass in the days of Ahasuerus, this, Ahas- this is Ahasuerus, which reigned from India even unto Ethiopia over 127 provinces. Or no, sorry, 120 provinces. So this was not a small country. This was a huge empire. And... When we look at this book, one of the things to remember about Esther is there's only two books in our Bible that have a woman's name on them. Esther and what's the other one? Ruth. So obviously there is something special about these two ladies that it doesn't matter whether you're a guy, a boy, a man, a girl, or a child. There's some good things that we can learn about it. And God thought it was so important that he included it in your Bible. 
Esther has 10 chapters, 167 verses, 5,637 words. And no, I didn't count them. Somebody else did it for me because I'm just not that studious. It supposedly happened around 45 to 465 BC. So think of over 450 years before Jesus Christ walked on this earth is when this story of Esther took place. In 2 Timothy 3.16, it tells us that all in, uh, scripture is given by inspiration of God. And it is profitable. It is profitable for us to read the Old Testament. I know there are some Baptists out there that think the only thing you should ever read is what Paul wrote. Uh, I disagree with them because uh, Paul wrote and told us that all scripture is profitable. I find it very interesting when there's clear commandments or clear things that are written, how often we have people that want to bob and weave and change what God wrote. Uh, I don't see any problems with it. God said, if it's scripture, it's inspired by God. If it's inspired by God, it's scripture. It's that simple. Uh, what God wanted me to read, he put in this book here so I didn't have to go anywhere else. And it's hard enough sometimes just to go to that book with our daily lives and the burdens we put on ourselves. It's easy to not go to the one book. Could you imagine what it'd be if it was a whole, you know, six foot tall, six foot wide cabinet full of books that God gave you of all the things he wanted you to learn. And yet he took it and he distilled it down so you could carry it around with you. Uh, but we're not going to start with the book of Esther just yet. We're going to talk a little about a little, a couple things first is, and the first one's dealing with in the Hebrew Bible, which is different than ours. What's the last book of their Bible? Does anybody know? No. Nope. Their Bible's different. It does not end with Malachi. Ours does. So if you go to the end of the Old Testament, it's the book of Malachi. But what is it in a Hebrew Bible? It's Second Chronicles. So I want you to turn over to Second Chronicles, chapter 36. So when a, when a Jew reads his Old Testament, the last thing he's going to read in the Old Testament, because that's all they read, is I want you to look in verse 23. Thus saith Cyrus, king of Persia, all the kingdoms of the earth hath the Lord God of heaven given me, and he hath charged me to build him an house in Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Who is there among all of you his people? The Lord his God, he is with him, and let him go up. It is a commandment by a king to return to the land. That's the last thing they read in their Bible. Turn over to Malachi. Let's look at the last verse in our, in our Old Testament. I'll get there eventually. I'm losing sword drills today. Malachi chapter 4. And the whole, well, if we read the whole part down here, it says in verse six, and he shall turn the heart of the fathers to the children and the heart of the children to their fathers, lest I come and smite the earth with a curse. That's a pretty big difference between what you read. When you read yours, the last thing you're reading is a curse. And that curse is telling you one of the things that's going to be prevalent in the land is the fact that fathers aren't going to love their children and children aren't going to love their fathers. Boy, that seems a lot to be what's going on today. How many of those big sports heroes that you know of are running around with just a mom? 
because they got a deadbeat dad. I'll add to it. I think they have a deadbeat mom too. What was she doing messing around with that thug or that worthless good for nothing? How, how about we put, you know, let, I'm not, I'm not taking any excuses off the guy, but at some point in time, we need to start looking fairly at the fact that it takes two to tango. And if we're going to do things, we need to do it God's way. And God's way is one man and one woman, and that's it. And you're supposed to get hitched, and it's supposed to be for life or till death do you part. And that's not popular in today's society. Today's society likes it. Well, as long as, you know, I like them and they like me and they do whatever I want them to do and all those kinds of things, then it's fine. But it's not fine when I don't get my way, when I don't get the things I want, then, you know, things start becoming a great mess. So we just looked at the book of Malachi and we looked at second Chronicles and we can see a totally difference, a total difference of what God is trying to teach us just from the way that the Bible is laid out. Now I have a question for you. You ever thought about the book of Ezra? What's the book of Ezra talk about? What's the major thing in the book of Ezra? The what? The temple. And it's going back to the land, to the Jews and the start of building a temple. They didn't finish it in the time of Ezra, but that's what they were supposed to do. Uh, we can see this happen. So, or let me back up. So it is a Gentile king telling the Jewish people to go back and build a temple in the land. That's the context of what was going on. Uh, in 1917, there was the Balfour Declaration, which was a statement of British support for the establishment in Palestine of a national home for the Jewish people. It was made in letter form from J- Arthur James Balfour, the British Foreign Secretary, to Lionel Walter Rothschild, the second Baron Rothschild, a leader in the Anglo-Jewish community during the reign of King George V. And it's dated November 2nd, 1917, and I won't read you the whole uh, blurb on it. Um, but at the end of it, he says, I wish that you would go out and publish this to all the Jews, that we want them to return back to the land. So it wasn't just Cyrus that was trying to get the Jews going back to the land. We have seen in the present realistic time frame where we have people who you know, you know people that were alive at the time frame the Balfour Declaration happened. It was endorsed by the principal allied powers as was included the British mandate over Palestine and formally approved by the League of Nations on July 24th, 1922. Now, after that, England and everybody else backpedaled on that declaration as probably as fast as they could get away with it. But it doesn't change the fact of that Ezra is talking about a king who is a Gentile sending the Jews back to the land, just like King George V gave a national proclamation for the Jews to go back to the land. Then we have the next Bible. We're looking at Nehemiah. What does Nehemiah talk about? Getting the people into the land and finishing the temple. So Nehemiah, when we read through there and we see it, we see at this point in time, it's time to get the people into the land. And one of the things we learned after the Balfour Declaration was it was a, it was a, uh, allowing them, the Jews to go back to the land, but they didn't go. They were like, Hey, we kind of like the gig we got right now. You know, we're making good money. Uh, we're affluent. We can do all these things that we want to do. We don't want to go back to the land because that's going to be like starting all over. And that's going to be like hard work. And then World War II came around. And Hitler killed a whole bunch of them. 
contrary to a lot of the popular people in today's society, you'll see them making comments of, uh, well, you know, Hitler did not kill six million Jews. You, you'll see people all the time. It is not uncommon to see some national celebrity, some politician, some actor, some person of notoriety that will tell you and completely against history, the fact that the Hitler's attack on the Jews is a lie. It never happened. Which I find very interesting because Dwight Eisenhower, who later became the president, one of his commands in dealing with it is you make sure you video and picture Everything you can with that, because there will come people later on who say this never happened. I've talked to some of the, uh, they're not here anymore, but there used to be some World War II soldiers that dealt with the liberation of the camps, and I talked to them. And they said they were miles away, and they said every hair on your body would just stand up. And it's just like he said, you knew you didn't want to be there. He said, you didn't know why, but he said, we just wanted to get out of there as soon as we can. And he said it got worse the closer you got to those camps. And they said you walked in and in there, and you saw these people that were nothing but skin and bones. I mean, there were, he didn't even know how they were still alive. And yet you have people have the audacity to stand up and tell you, oh, that never happened. Have you ever thought about the world? It is so crazy now that you can get up and tell an absolute lie. And you know what? People go, well, I agree with him. He's smart. He must know something or whatever else and totally refute actual historical fact. One of the other questions to think about is, isn't it interesting, if you've read the Old Testament and you've read the stories in the first part of it, that the Jews are the only nation, the only group of people left from the Old Testament. All of the people that lived around them, the Hittites and all the ever, uh, other ites, whichever one happens to be your favorite one, pick one, it doesn't matter. They're not around anymore. Those languages are dead. Hebrew is still here. The Jewish people are still here. If it wasn't for God with the hatred that Hitler had and many other people besides just him, the Jews wouldn't be here anymore. I mean, all those other countries are gone. It it has to be because God is involved. Otherwise, these people wouldn't be here. Uh, Another way to think about it is, You can write down a postal letter right now, put down the right zip code, and you can send it to Israel to a Jew. There's no address you can write down to a Hittite, a Gadite, a fill-in-the-blank, whatever the ite, you know, you want, Hivites, Jebusites, whatever you want. They're not there. But as we think about that, even though Nehemiah gives us a type and a picture of the temple being restored, the Jews don't have a temple right now. And see, the temple's really part. There's a whole bunch of things in the Jewish religion. You have to have the temple or the tabernacle, either one. There's no way around it. Yeah, I understand that now they do a whole bunch of stuff and they, they think they're keeping the law and everything. You can't without the temple and the tabernacle. It's requirements by God. You cannot say you're following all the things that God wants you to do. Why? Because you don't have the place he told you to go do the sacrifices at. You don't have the Levitical priest system set up on all these other things that are supposed to be going on. Um, one of the things, if you're interested at all, I, I recommend you go look at the Temple Institute website. 
It's showing all of the things that they're doing to prepare and to get ready for a future temple or tabernacle. They have the Levitical garments created. They have the altar ready to go. They have the menorah. They have all of these things. They actually right now have a lady who's working on making the curtain that goes between the holy place and the most holy place. And I don't know when, how long that's going to take her, but you know, when you're doing things by hand and trying to do things God ways to the best of your knowledge, it's not going to be a short period of time. But she is working on that. They now have the red heifer so they can, uh, um, within the next, I think it's a year, approximately a year, they will have a red heifer that will be blameless that they will be able to sacrifice and have the ashes of used for the purification, which is required for the temple services. Um, You can read about that in Numbers chapter 19. It was on September 15th of 2022 at 5 p.m., five perfect unblemished red heifers arrived into Israel from the United States of America. But there's still one thing that's missing. Anybody know what's missing from the temple or tabernacle? They've recreated all these different items. They're getting really close to having everything. But there's one thing you have to have. The Ark of the Covenant. So I'm just curious out of here. How many of you have an idea where the Ark of the Covenant is? Raise your hand. Where do you think it's at, brother? The Vatican. Okay. That's one. There are some people who believe that. And the reason they believe that is in 70 AD when Titus went through and conquered and destroyed Jerusalem and made sure one stone was not on top of another. And they brought a whole bunch of things back. You can actually go to Rome today and they have the Arch of Titus that you can see an example of all the things that he brought back. You know what was missing on that? The Ark. The menorah was there. There was a lot of other stuff that was brought back, but there's no indication the Ark of the Covenant was brought back. In addition to that, B.C., I can't remember what the year is right off the top of my hand, but there was another Roman general that went through and went into the Holy of Holies as a lost man, a Gentile. He walked all the way into the Holy of Holies, looked out, came out, and he said, there's nothing in there. Hmm. Well, there happens to be a country that has had PBS documentaries about that the Ark of the Covenant's there. It was brought over by the Queen of Sheba. Uh, it's called Ethiopia. Anybody ever heard that story before that's in Ethiopia? Yeah. I don't believe it's there either. Um, I'll tell you a couple reasons why. Do any of you remember the story of when the Ark of the Covenant went to the Philistine nation over in the area of Gaza? all the problems that they had, and it was so bad with their God falling over and the hands cut off and all the other stuff, you know, it was falling in front of the, as like it was bowing down in front of the Ark of the Covenant, their big Dagon, their big fish God, that they decided we've had enough of this. We're sending it back. And they put it on a court and a whole bunch of, you know, the little Emrod sacrifice and sent it on its way. So you look at all the things that happened with the Ark of the Covenant. I don't see that happening in Rome. I don't see that happening in Ethiopia. So I don't think it's in either of those two locations. Now, this is not Bible. I personally think it probably was Jeremiah that hid it away. Because we know it was there before Jeremiah's time, but there's no recorded instance anywhere in the Bible of anybody ever seeing or talking about the Ark of the Covenant after that. I think he hid it. 
Now, I'm going to give you uh, one reason why I think he hid it is because in order for you to have that temple and come back, you have to have the Ark of the Covenant to put that blood on the mercy seat, number one. Number two, we know our Bible tells us there's going to come a point in time when the devil who's going to say, I am God, is going to sit down on that mercy seat. He's going to say, I am God and worship me. Well, in order to have the mercy seat, that sits on top of the Ark of the Covenant. Ark of the Covenant has to come back. On top of that, if you go to the Temple Institute in there, uh, there's a whole thing about the Ark of the Covenant. And one of the things is in there, this is the, st- I'm going to read you the statement. So this is not Jeff putting any spin on it. I'm telling you what is on the Temple Institute website right now. You can read it. It says, and I'm skipping the first part of the article. It says, in reality, the expression lost Ark is not accurate. Uh, description uh, from the Jewish people's point of view, because we have always known exactly where it is. So the Ark is hidden and hidden quite well, but it is not lost, according to the Temple Institute. Tradition records that even as King Solomon first built the or built the first temple, he already knew through divine inspiration that eventually it would be destroyed. Thus Solomon, the wisest of all men, oversaw the construction of a vast system of labyrinth, mazes, chambers, and corridors underneath the Temple Mount complex. He commanded that a special place be built in the bowels of the earth where the sacred vessels of the temple could be hidden in case of approaching danger. And then it goes on and some other things. This location is recorded in our sources. And today there are those who know exactly where this chamber is. And we know that the ark is still there, undisturbed and waiting for the day when it will be revealed. An attempt was made some few a uh, few years ago to excavate towards the direction of this chamber. This resulted in widespread Muslim unrest and rioting. They stand a great deal to lose if the ark is revealed, for it will prove to the whole world that there really was a holy temple, and thus that the Jews really do have a claim to the Temple Mount. It's important to understand that's a, that is going to come about. That is going to come out at some point in time. That temple is going to be rebuilt. And I know there's all sorts of scholars that are determining where and the place and all this stuff for all of that. Um, I personally don't really care where the scholars think they're going to build it. God, the Jews are going to build it where they think God wants them to put it, period. The, and the Jews could be wrong. I don't think so. I think they'll get it right. Um, but nonetheless is, um, after that, we have the book of Job. What's this? What's if you had to write down a, a short synopsis of what the book of Job is about, what would you call it? Suffering and tribulations where the devil is persecuting a man. I mean, you ever thought about that? Think how, think how difficult sometimes our lives are. We don't have the devil's undivided attention. We don't have the devil going up to God saying, Hey, um, I know you got all these toys down there you call human beings that you play with. Can I have that one to play with? God, let's just face it. The devil isn't doing that for us, but he decided to do it for Job. Does anybody remember how many chapters there are in the book of Job? 42. Now that's an interesting number. Why is the number 42 so interesting? It's a length of the great tribulation, three and a half years, three and a half years. Um, one of the other interesting things, I want you to turn over to Job chapter 42. And don't worry, we'll get it back to why we're doing all this in just a little bit. Job chapter 42. And I want you to lurk in verse 10. 
And the Lord turned the what of Job? Hmm. Was Job captive of anything? I mean, if you've read the book of Job, there was no captivity of Job. Now, I will say, yes, he had a whole bunch of really bad things happen. But there wasn't any captivity of Job. So maybe what God's trying to teach us here in this book of Job that has 42 chapters, which is the same amount of time as 42 months, which is three and a half years, talking about a Jewish man being persecuted by the devil, is trying to give us a picture of a future time, the Great Tribulation, which is 42 months long, that the devil is going to persecute and put the Jewish people into captivity and kill as many of them as can. He's going to make Hitler look like a lightweight. However, God uses the word captivity in reference to the Jewish nation five times. That's interesting. Five. What's the number five mean in your Bible? Death. Now, that's not every single occurrence in your Bible, but most of the time, the number five is dealing something with death. So what comes after the book of Job? Psalms. Who is who wrote the majority of the book of Psalms? David. David was a king. So I want you to think of it in this sense. When you're looking in a King James Bible, you are seeing a premillennial layout of Ezra, well, Chronicles in a sense, but Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther, Job, Psalms. Because after the captivity of Job, of the Jewish people in the Great Tribulation, the millennium's coming in with Jesus Christ as the king of the earth. Just like David was the king of the earth, a type of Jesus Christ, a prophet, priest, and king, they're going to see that fulfilled. And we see that written in the order of the books of your Bible. God thought it was so important that he laid out the Bibles in a different order than the Hebrew Bible to show and to teach you some things that are there for you to be able to learn. That's why in 2 Timothy 2.15, the verse that gets modified slightly by all the new versions, I thought actually about bringing some of those down, but I decided against it. Um, but they, they like to take the word study out. The only verse in your Bible that tells you to study, they want to mess with. Hmm. And on top of that, they sometimes remove the connotations. You know, it's not, it's not really ashamed. It's, they have other nicer words to use and things like that. It's important to understand that your, your Old Testament has a premillennial layout or arrangement of the books of the Bible in there. It's not just, you know, God put them in there in some weird way. There's a reason for it. Let's turn back to Esther chapter one. So one of the things to think about when you read, when we read about the kingdom of Ahasuerus, one of the things I want you to picture in your mind is that's India. That's Pakistan. That's Afghanistan. That's Iran, Iraq, Kuwait, Syria, Lebanon, Israel, Jordan, Saudi Arabia, Oman, Yemen, Egypt, Sudan, Ethiopia, and possibly more. That's the whole area that we're dealing with at this particular point in time in the book of Esther. That was that empire. Um, and when we read here um, about these uh, provinces, 
we can go back to the book of Daniel and see this is a kingdom that happens after the time of Daniel. So if we go read the book of Daniel and we see how that kingship goes, then we come over here to the time of the Medes and Persians. You see that transition in the book of Daniel, but you see it continued in Esther. And if you remember back in Daniel, there was a golden or there was an idol where the top of it was gold. Remember for Nebuchadnezzar? Why? Because Nebuchadnezzar could make a command and he could change the command any way he wanted. He could do whatever he wanted. The next kingdom, though, was silver. That's this kingdom we're looking at right now, the Medes and the Persians. When the king of the Medes and Persians made a command, he did not have the authority to line it out. Once he said it, one of two was written down at law, that's it. There was no changing it. So just in that transition time frame, if you look at those countries, the king no longer had the same power that he had before to do whatever he wanted. In the the time of the Medes and the Persians, when he made that command, that was it. And that plays into the whole underlying things going on in the book of Esther. Um, Now, Shushan the palace, which was the capital of the kingdom of Elam, has in it a great hall that was excavated consisting of several magnificent columns, 36 of them, six rows of six, flanked on the west, north, and east by an equal number in double rows of six. The inscriptions in the runes saying the palace was founded by Darius and completed by Artaxerxes. Daniel lived in Shushan in Daniel chapter 8. Nehemiah lived in Shushan in Nehemiah chapter 1. So when you're going through and you're reading these locations, sometimes it's good to know is, well, who else lived here? What else went on besides just the book of Esther? Because that fits into that story. Uh, in Esther chapter 1, and when we look in verse 3, it says, In the third year of his reign, he made a feast unto all his princes and his servants, the power of Persia and Media, the nobles and the princes of the provinces being before him. So the king decided to throw a party. This is my, you know, version of it. Can you imagine what kind of party it must have been if the king threw it? I mean, he's bringing all these dignitaries and everybody else into this, and they're having this huge party. Can you imagine the expense and the grandeur that the largest empire of the world at that point in time decided to have a party? I mean, there would have been stuff from all over. I mean, from back then, because, I mean, just think about how we live today. We have so many things that we, that we take it. We don't even think about the history or where it came from. You know, how many people here had a coffee this morning, either on your way to church, while you're here at church, uh, while I'm talking so you can stay awake, you know, whatever the case may be, right? Where did coffee come from? It hasn't been around forever. It's not a worldwide topic. There are a lot of things like that. You know, uh, for other people, maybe your your thing of choice is not coffee. You decided to have chocolate this morning before you came to just give you that little sugar rush or whatever else that you wanted. Chocolate's not something that's always been around. You know, you can go to your spice cabinet and see spices that even a 100 years ago would have been very hard to get a hold of. Now think about this whole empire and where they were drawing all of this stuff from. All of the spices, all of the different dishes, all the different meals. Because he would want to cater to everybody in the area that they lived in and all this kind of things. Think of, I mean, it is the ultimate Baptist potluck. 
I want you to picture having a Baptist potluck where you brought in some brothers from every missionary you ever heard of, thought of, whatever else, and they have a whole table that's just nothing but their ethnic foods. And then the pastor says, come on down, we're going to eat. You don't even have to bring anything, just show up. Our missionaries are supplying, you know, we're using the missionaries and we're supplying all uh, these foods for you to eat. I mean, I want you to think of how grand, so much grander this must have been. This was not some small trivial thing where, you know, well, we have nothing better to do this afternoon. So, you know, we're going to have a potluck and please bring some chips. And if you're A through F and if you're G through whatever, uh, you know, bring some cookies from, you know, whatever the local, you know, it's not that kind of a thing. This is a huge, huge deal. Um, now, the other thing is this. Uh, one of the things to think about is this may have relation inspirationally and doctrinally with a wedding feast. What if there's three and a half year wedding feast? Because he said he'd been king for at least three years. This may have a implication in there of a wedding feast. Um, and one way to look at that is in um, Mer- Revelation chapter 19.9, it talks about come to the marriage supper of the Lamb. There's going to become a big, uh, I mean, I don't know how each of you, when you got married, maybe you went down to the local justice of the peace and, you know, just signed the paperwork and, uh, you know, they, they had, you know, stamped it and you're good to go. Uh, maybe you went to a church. Maybe you went to Las Vegas. You know, I, I don't know. Um, but there is a marriage coming that's happening in the future where all of the Christians of the world, God's going to take out of here called the rapture. And while all this tribulation is going on on earth, there's stuff going on in heaven. heaven. The first thing being the judgment seat of Christ. Not a judgment for your sins. It's a judgment for your works. What did you do with the talents and the capabilities I gave you, with the opportunities I put before you, what did you do with it? Did you do it all for yourself or did you do something for me? So all the stuff that you did for yourself, that's the wood, hay, and stubble. God lights it up like it's the biggest barbecue you ever saw and it's gone. Or, you know, maybe it's fire pit, you know, like you do in s'mores. You know, take your pick. But the second part of that is the people that you saved and all the other stuff. If you did it for the Lord, not yourself, not look at me. Not any of that stuff, God gets, I'll reward you. I'll give you jewels. I'll give you gold and silver and all these precious things. And after the end of all that, God says, you know what? It's time to get my son hitched. And after you get hitched, you have a marriage supper. So maybe for you, you know, I don't know about you. Maybe when you got married, you had a reception hall that you rented afterwards and you had people come and eat and celebrate the fact that you got married. Well, for God, it's a big deal. For God, his son has a bride and he wants to celebrate it. It's not going to be some little schmoky deal. It's not going to be, well, you know, there's 15 people that showed up. By the way, there might have been some stuff in the New Testament where God talked about having a marriage supper and he's saying, come, come. And people go, ah, we're too busy. Oh, I got this other stuff to do. I you know, I need, I, I, I. They just released 10 episodes of my favorite show on Netflix. I need to binge watch them now. I can't go. Or, you know, maybe some of the other people. I got a new boat and trailer, and I need to go make sure this works good because I got a fishing trip coming up. And, you know, uh, I had, a, and the reason I say that is I had a friend that bought or has a new truck, and he hooked it up to his new trailer and had his boat on there, and it would back up about three feet and stop and would not let him back up anymore. 
because the safety systems and all the other stuff. Took it to the dealer. Went round and round with the dealer. They did all sorts of stuff. Could not figure out why, what it was. So he started thinking about it. And what he realized was on his trailer that he had, he had four incandescent lights. Everything else was LEDs. But he had four incandescents because he wanted to be able to see really well when he backs up. So he decided, even though the dealership said, this can't be it, he went through, took all those four incandescent lights out, put regular LEDs in that had the same light value, and now his truck would now allow him to back down the ramp and get a boat into water. And the reason was, it was the amperage amount. So the error report coming from the computer didn't actually tell him what the problem was. There was a problem, and it was an amperage problem that it was too high, and that's what the truck was complaining about is you need to fix this. It's just the developers who wrote all the software and the code behind what it did, they had the stuff in there to protect the truck, but they didn't put an error message in there that was particularly helpful. So think about those things. You know, there's something that came up. You know, I got tickets to whatever it is. It's a show, whatever. Think of all the excuses those people came up with. Well, what are ours? You know, uh, hey, I'd go to church today, but hey, I, I'd go to prayer meeting, but you know, I, I have company coming over. You know, I have family coming in. How many of those people are going to miss it because something else is way too important? But continuing on. Job, the one who is persecuted with 42 chapters, which he goes 1260 days, which he goes three and a half years. Uh, I want you to think about in Job chapter two, verse 11, where he had his three friends. Anybody remember how long his three friends came to say hi to him uh, when he saw all this bad stuff happen? Or let me back that up. Who came and saw him and all the bad stuff, how long they were with him before they said one thing? Seven days. Hmm. Seven is another very interesting number because there are a lot of people who believe the tribulation will actually be a seven year, approximately seven year period split up into two, three and a half year periods of time. The last three and a half period of time being the great tribulation. Additionally, in Daniel, uh, he has his vision of the 70th week, which was seven days and seven nights. So the Messiah was come. He is dead. That's the end of the 69th week, starting the 70th week. In the midst of that week, oh, that's another three and a half year time period. There's a prince who's going to break an agreement, a covenant. Hmm, that's an interesting thing. Also notice in Job 42, chapter 10, when it uses that word about him being in captivity, what was the thing that turned the captivity? Anybody remember? He prayed for his friends. He prayed for those three friends that had come to be with him. So one of the things to think about is Israel is going to get restored as a nation and set back up on top. You remember all the disciples, one of them like, hey, Lord, are you going to return the kingdom now? I mean, are we get to get to be, you know, the, the, the big shots? Do we get to be in charge of things? And God's like, it's not, not, it's not for you to know the times nor the seasons. Any of those kinds of things. Why? Because it's future. You have other things you need to worry about. It's great to read prophecy. It, but the problem is that sometimes we get so hung up in prophecy, we forget to read anything else. We forget to do anything else. 
There are people that are out on Facebook and other little groups that all they want to do is debate the Bible ad ad, just forever, but never actually do anything for the Lord. That's not the way it's supposed to be. Uh, in Esther chapter 1, in verses 5 to 6, it goes on to say, And when these days were expired, the king made a feast unto all the people. So besides, he had all of the, you know, the, the, the in crowd, all the good-looking people, you know, all the rich people, all the princes and all these people that he had this big party for them. And when that was done, then he threw a party for everybody. And it says here, when those days were expired, the king made a feast unto all the people that were present in Shushan the palace, both under the great and small, seven days in the court of the garden of the king's palace, where were white, green, and blue hangings fastened with cords of linen and purple and silver rings and pillars of marble. The beds were of gold and silver upon a pavement of red, blue, and white, and black marble. I'll let you know, I can't even picture this in my mind. I have a hard time envisioning it. I'm just going to say this very simply. I think it's pretty nice to look at. I'm pretty sure this is a pretty nice looking deal. I'm pretty sure that if we could actually today, if God decided to and allowed them to recreate it, we'd go, wow, that, that's fancy. I mean, I've seen some of the little places that people in Hollywood have and the other people have the million, they go, wow, it's nothing like that. Um, and think about all of the current politicians who are so concerned about the poor, the needy, the downtrodden, the discriminated against. When's the last time you ever heard any of them decide to throw a feast for those same people for seven days? The whole lot. You know what? Washington, D.C. that has the murder capital of the United States of America is its unofficial title. Most of the time it's true. When's the last time you had a politician go, you know, we got a lot of needy people here. We're going to feed everybody for seven days. And we're not just feeding them, you know, this isn't MREs. Uh, and if you don't know what MREs are, meals ready to eat, the military has them. Uh, I had the pleasure of having those when I was over in Desert Storm or Desert Shield. Uh, we ran out of some different things. So we had crackers that were, came in a gray plastic dated 1969. <laughs> and you ripped them off. And I'm pretty sure they tasted the same in 1969 as when we ate them, which really wasn't that good. Uh, but you know, I'm pretty sure they weren't feeding MREs. Uh, they weren't, you know, and let's face it, most of the meals they have now are way better than they were than I was in. But I'm just saying, the king is doing a feast for everybody. This wasn't, this isn't a soup kitchen. And yet we have these people that supposedly care so much about the people, they can't even do what a Gentile king did for everybody in the entire kingdom, or everybody did in the, the basically Washington, D.C. for us, the capital, great or small, everybody was in. And yet we have people have that destiny that I feel your pain. You know, I care about you, all those other things. Uh, Gentile kings gave feasts on their birthday, as in Genesis chapter 41, Matthew chapter 14, at weddings, as in Esther chapter 2, or to show off in Daniel chapter 5. These feasts were not for the servants to give gifts to the king, but for the king to reward his servants for their faithful service and honor to him. Just like we're going to see at the marriage supper of the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, the gardens of the king of the palaces was not a place with rows of carrots, potatoes, and other fruits and vegetables, or whatever it is that you like in your particular garden. Uh, this would be like Northwest Trek, 
or your favorite national park. Uh, it is supposed to be, in some sense, a type of heaven on earth, and that's where this was thrown at, and it was going on for seven days. Imagine being a poor person living in the capital, and you get to go not only eat all this food, you get to see North, Northwest Trek, your, whatever your favorite zoo is that you can actually see and interact with the animals in the most beautiful environment you can conceive of, that's where you were getting fed at. It wasn't like, oh, well, we have this little annex over here because we don't want you associating with the good people. And the No, everybody was there. That's where they got to go. What an amazing thing. Um, the other thing that it talks about here are the beds. Uh, we can see this in Song of Sol- uh, Solomon chapter 3 and some other places. Beds don't mean beds like what we think of them necessarily. Uh, a lot of the beds in the oriental culture, culture is that's how they head or the Romans. You think about how they ate. They didn't all sit, you know, they didn't do one of these numbers, you know, sitting at the table. They had the big, you know, basically if you had a big long pew where you could recline or lay off to the side or lay down and just, you know, your hand would come up and grab some grapes, you know, and that would be like, as a kid, that would have been a fantasy. Can you imagine what it'd be like if your parents let you just like lay down and you can just reach up with your hand and grab some food and just stuff it in there and that'd be great. You know, that's the kind of place to the thing that we see going on in there. It also gives us a picture of John chapter 21 where we see that John is laying on the breast of the Lord Jesus Christ. Can you imagine? I mean, just imagine there's this comfortable, you know, bench that's up here. I mean, not like a Lutheran pew that I grew up on, which was all oak, and they were polished nice and good, so if you fell asleep, you'd right out of that bad boy, and you'd hurt yourself. Can you imagine what it must have been like to have Jesus Christ sitting down there and that he would allow you to lean against him and put your head on his breast? Can you imagine what kind of fellowship? Can you imagine what that must have felt like? John, the disciple whom Jesus loved, is sitting there and they're at this banquet and all the other stuff going on. And I'm pretty sure if you talk to John, you know, what was one of the greatest things you ever got to do? It was just sitting there, laying with my head on the breast of the Lord Jesus Christ. And obviously it was, it, it, it shows the closeness of John to Jesus because then you see Peter, you know, the guy that's supposed to be in charge of everything and had the keys to death and hell and all the other stuff, which isn't true and isn't Bible. Peter goes to John, hey, can you ask him who the bad guy is? Well, if Peter's the big guy, God should have already told him or he should just go and ask him, why is he asking John? Because obviously John had a special relationship. And John, when we read the book of John and we understand he was the son of thunder, and then we go read first, second, and third John, and we realize his life was totally changed. He wasn't the son of thunder anymore. He's talking about children, love. Christians, love. One of the things that should be the greatest trademarks is the fact that after we get saved, we can have love for people that, let's face it, otherwise we wouldn't want anything to do with them. I mean, some of you may want nothing to do with me. I'm sorry, your first thousand years in heaven are going to be a bummer because I'm going to be there. (laughs) Why? Because as a five-year-old kid watching Billy Graham, I said, hey, I'm a sinner, save me. And God says, okay, I'll save you. As long as you're trusting in Jesus Christ, I'll save you. And if you did that, regardless of your age, we're going to all be together. But I am going to give you a little asterisk here. 
don't worry, God's going to fix me up by the time I get there. Between here and in the air, there's going to be a lot of fixing up going on. So you'll actually probably really like me by then. And the last thing to remember is that the rapture of the church takes place and the Christian is in heaven and there's a celebration. It's going to be like what they're talking about in Hester. I mean, think about whatever this king dreamed up is nothing compared to what God has waiting for you. The Lord Jesus Christ has been working for 2,000 years on your home. It only took six days to recreate the earth and make it into what environmentalists and everybody else think is a paradise. Can you imagine what it's like when God has had 2,000 years to work on something? That's why Paul said, you know, when we, we talk about those, eye has not seen, ear has not heard. Guess what? It hasn't even entered into your brain. You can't even dream or conceive of the things that God has waiting for us. To me, that's an amazing thing. And we can see all of this and hey, we're not even halfway into the chapter one of the book of Esther. There's so much more when we look at the inspirational applications of things that we can get out of it. You notice everything that I've told you so far isn't talking about it. Yes, I'm talking a little bit about what's going on with Esther, but I'm showing you this. It's showing you a type of picture of future things. That's the great thing about our Bible is sometimes it's boring. You know why it's boring? Because we're not looking for the rest of the story. We're not wanting God to open our eyes and illumine us and help us to see some of the great things he put in here just for you. Because I can tell you there's going to come some days really soon where you're going to go, God, I'm not having fun today. And it may be a health issue. It may be I got fired. The place where I work went out of business. It may be something where, you know, someone you care about deeply has a bad health issue. There's all sorts of bad things that can happen and are going to happen. Time and chance happens to all men, to the just and the unjust. Getting saved is not this, oh, God puts a seal of protection on you and you're going to live the perfect life and you're going to, you know, you can be like a certain pastor in Houston, Texas who has a Ferrari in his back and he goes to the back and he pops the trunk and he pulls out his sermon illustration. No, because when you change families, you now have an enemy. I mean, it was bad enough just dealing with the flesh. Let's just face it. The flesh in itself is hard. And then you got the world. Oh, you get saved. Hey, guess what? You got number three now. The devil actually really is, you know, doesn't want you to do well either. But remember, this isn't the end. Always remember, this isn't the end. Somebody who's evil, bad, whatever, maybe looks like they're getting away of everything. Yeah, God's not settling accounts now. Those accounts get settled later. Let's close in a word of prayer. Thank you, Lord, for having this time. I pray for each person here, you would bless them for coming. Lord, that uh, you would be lifted up and magnified by the things that are said and done here today, Lord, that in the services to come, that you, that all the praise, all the honor, all the glory, everything going on, Lord, would be all for you. And that we could tell you in our own way from our own heart, Lord, thank you for saving us. Thank you for loving us. And thank you for giving us uh, a church to come to and a place, Lord, where we can celebrate you. We can lift you up. And Lord, where you can be who you truly uh, need to be, the King of Kings in our hearts and lives. And we ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen.